But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are not Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Pastor Dave. Morning to you all. Good to see all of you this morning. Happy Mother's Day to our mothers for worshiping with us this morning. It seems we're a little smaller this morning because I think many families uh, went to the joint uh, worship. And then I know uh, several of our college students are actually uh, graduating today. So uh, congratulations to them. So, so I knew um, Beyonce. You, you, know, you know, all of you know who Beyonce is. I know she was. she's very popular. Um, but did you know that there's a church that was formed in her honor? Uh, I am not making this up. Um, there's a church that was formed in 2014 called the National Church of Bay to practice Bayism. The lead person who calls herself Minister Diva, Pauline John Andrews, stated that followers are very disappointed in the failure of the public to recognize the existence of a divine deity walking among them. Beyonce's spirit is entrancing. We know that sent to this place to spread love, peace, and joy. Open your mind to the new possibilities and you will see, just as we did, that Bay is a true higher power. Members gather together on Sunday to study and sing Beyonce hits. Um, they're even putting together a sacred book which is called, you guessed it, the Babel. And I do not know the current status of the church uh, but they started with a group, originally with a group of 12, and uh, late in 2014 it was reported that 200 people were in attendance for their services on Sunday. The minister David did acknowledge that when uh, the 12 decided to create this church, alcohol and marijuana were being consumed in the room. So, you know, we, we hear these things and, and we're like, you know, this is ridiculous, and we just shrug it off. Is, is, this is just crazy people doing crazy things. But it's actually pretty dangerous uh, because people can get tangled in the web of lies and deceit. You know, in, in May of that year, more seriously, a follower of Bayism committed suicide as a sacrifice to Beyonce. She considered Beyonce her Lord and Savior and was found dead beside a homemade shrine dedicated to the singer. So these things are, you know, are kind of crazy and ridiculous, but they do uh, or can prove to be dangerous at times. 
And as we get into our passage for this morning, we're going to see something much less extreme. But we're going to see also that it's also very dangerous. And so to catch us up a bit, you know, we're continuing in the book of Galatians, which we started last month. Uh, Paul writes Galatians to defend the truth of the gospel as it relates to false teachers coming to undermine uh, the teaching of Paul and his authority. These teachers argued that Paul wasn't an authentic apostle because in part he wasn't one of the twelve you know, disciples and because he had incorrectly removed some of the legal requirements of the gospel as it was given in the Old Testament. So to our passage for this morning in most of Galatians 1 and 2, we see Paul defending himself, defending his role as an apostle of Christ by showing and telling the Galatians that his training, or his, sorry, his calling was authentic and both his calling and training came from Jesus. So here in today's passage, he defends his authority by sharing with us the confrontation that he had with the lead apostle, Peter. And as we see, as we take a look at this passage and see the confrontation, I want us to see what it was all about. I want to show why it matters and what implications it has for us. So looking at the confrontation, Paul describes a time when Peter was in Antioch, which is a Gentile city, which, accordingly for the church, was made up mostly of Gentile believers. Now in Acts 10, Peter had a special revelation from God where he had this dream where God was telling him to eat all these animals that were considered unclean in the Old Testament. Peter tells God, I will never eat anything that is unclean or impure. And God retorts, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. What this dream was all about was to indicate to Peter that God was laying aside all the laws of clean and unclean food because the Gentiles were now coming to salvation through Jesus. Understand, before this, you know, Jews would never eat with Gentiles. The Jewish food laws functioned to separate Jews from Gentiles and gave them a special sacred identity as people belonging to God. But after this revelation, Peter knew Jesus and Gentiles were both welcome into God's kingdom and could and should fellowship together. So in Antioch, he was joining, you know, the, the Gentile church members and their meals. You know, he could have been chowing down on things like, you know, barbecue ribs or lobster rolls, things like that. But when men came from James, it said, he decided to no longer eat with the Gentiles or eat their food. Why? Because it says in verse 12, he was afraid. He was afraid of those belonging to the circumcision group. Understand that the men who came from James were probably different from the circumcision group, but obviously they were aligned and thought with the party, or with the circumcision group. The circumcision group were most likely non-Christian Jews who were persecuting those who were becoming associated with Christianity and challenging them to convert convert fully to Judaism. Peter was a primary attack target for them because he was one of the main leaders of this new religion, if you want to call it Christianity. And so if you get him to fold, others will follow. And we see in verse 13, 
you know, their plan worked. Peter shrunk back and no longer associated with the Gentiles. The other Jewish Christians in Antioch also disassociated themselves from the Gentiles. And even Barnabas, it says, was led, away, led astray. So, if it helps to visualize this, I actually found in the commentary a chart that kind of, kind of diagrammed this out. And I know we kind of live in a politically sensitive environment, but no political statement is meant to be made here. I just want to show you the, uh, this diagram. Oh, sorry. So if you can see it, on the left, you have Paul, who consistently, you know, stretched the boundaries of Judaism, you know, hiding the, you know, the Jewish Christians that they didn't need to follow Old Testament. On the right, you have the circumcision party and the party from James, who believed in a more conservative form of Judaism and a more probably conservative form of Christianity. Peter was the moderate in this sense because he tried to live in between the two, uh, the two sides. Gentile Christians were obviously on the left. Jewish Christians were kind of on the right or could be in the middle depending how each individual person believed. Barnabas was originally more on the left, siding with Paul, but then through Peter's influence he became, you know, he started moving to the right. So Paul sees all this going on and he calls Peter out for his hypocrisy. In verse 14, he says, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Understand there is no charge in Paul's first statement to Peter, for there is nothing wrong with Peter, who is Jewish, to live like a Gentile, to reach the Gentiles. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 9, To those not having the law, in other words, the Gentiles, I became like one not having the law. So he has to win those not having the law. So it wasn't the first statement, it was the second statement that was the issue. He was forcing the Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. What this means is that he apparently was making the Gentile Christians be circumcised and follow dietary laws in order to find favor with God. By doing so, for Peter, it would have reduced the threat of persecution he would receive and he was beginning to feel from the Jews who came to criticize him. You know, so why was this so troublesome to Paul? Okay, I mean, we look and we see, yeah, you know, he disrespected the Gentile Christians, you know, they should have been treated equal. You know, that, that is an issue. But why was it, why did Paul make it seem like such a bigger deal? And though we don't see it in our English translations, Paul used some very strong terms to condemn Peter. In verse 11 in the NIV, you know, it says, I oppose Peter to his face. But in the original language, this word used for, op- for oppose indicated more than just Pete, Paul telling Peter he was wrong. He was telling Peter, you stand condemned by God for your actions. In verse 13, you know, we see twice the word hypocrisy. And we have, you know, we know what hypocrisy is. We, we don't like hypocrisy. I mean, just this week, you know, we saw hypocrisy. People, if you were, you know, keeping up with the news, people were condemning the New York Attorney General for being a hypocrite because he initially, when all this stuff came out about Harvey Weinstein, you know, he was condemning Harvey Weinstein for his acts and, you know, making, uh, you know, sexual advances and, and being uh, improper with women. 
And then just this week, the New York Attorney General had to resign because it turns out he was accused of allegedly assaulting four women. So people were calling him out to be a hypocrite. And also this week, people were railing at Melania Trump because, you know, she gave a speech about the platform she would work on to help children. One of her platform, or part of her platform, was protecting children from cyberbullying. But people were calling her out, calling her a hypocrite because they saw her husband as one of the you know, biggest cyber bullies around. So we know what hypocrisy is. You know, we see it. We know it, it's, it's wrong. But even in the, the original language, this word carries a much stronger weight. The term not just talks about someone who says one thing but acts another, you know, does one thing but, but says the opposite. The term carries the sense of being in opposition to God and his truth, and even being a heretic. But Paul took this very seriously. You know, this was such an important issue for him, because more so than just some Jewish or Gentile Christians being disrespected, what was at stake was the heart of the gospel and what was true. One of the key words in this passage is the word force in verse 14. Peter was forcing the Gentile Christians to follow Jewish customs. He was commanding them to get circumcised, begin following Jewish practices in order to receive favor with God. And in doing so, in a sense, he was destroying the gospel of Christ by mandating that the Gentile Christians become Jews in order to be saved. For, for Paul, this is serious stuff because to do so, minimize the work that Jesus did on their behalf. By recounting this incident and writing what he does following, Paul gives clarity to what the gospel really is. So the truth of the gospel is found in verse 16. Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So justification is by faith alone. So what does that mean? If someone came and asked you, justification is, is, is by faith alone, what, what does that mean? How do you answer? Well, first, I think you would need to tell them what it means to be justified or what justification means. How would you define that? To give you a simple definition for our context, justification is God seeing our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness belonging to us. God seeing our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness belonging to us so that God considers us righteous in his sight. You see, the fight people are in is that we are guilty before God because we have broken God's laws and not obeyed his commands. We would like God to just you know, forgive us to make things right. But on what basis could he do this? You know, God as a just judge cannot just simply overlook sin. But God, out of his love and grace, sent his son Jesus to legally assume our guilt and pay the punishment for our sins through his crucifixion. For those who place their faith in Christ, they are declared forgiven before God. They are being seen as having right standing before God because of the righteousness that was in Jesus. So we are justified by faith alone, not by works. 
So we understand that for the Galatians to get circumcised or Peter commanding them to keep, you know, a kosher diet, this was against what the gospel was all about because by doing that, they were earning their salvation before God. It was only by faith in the work of Christ that one receives right standing before God. But what does it mean to have faith in Christ? Once again, to give you a simple definition for our context, faith is the initial and continual response of trust in and obedience to Christ. Notice from this definition, it's not just a one-time act of belief, it is this continual disposition of trust in Christ throughout our lives. Faith and works cannot go together because they are competing options. You know, either one believes in Christ and chooses to commit to him, or one chooses to commit to the law and obey that. A person cannot be under both systems because by trying to live under both systems, you destroy the other's integrity. So, for example, if a person says, I believe in Jesus and accept him for salvation, but I also feel we have to do this and this and that to gain acceptance before God, you undermine the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. So we're justified by faith alone. You know, it's God's gift to us. It's out of his love and grace and mercy, and not in any part a repayment or compensation for our good works to him. But now I'm saying this, I need to get a little deeper in learning about two dangers one could read into this statement, and dangers people have read into the statement. And, and usually I don't want to, I try not to get too deep, this deep in, in speaking on Sundays, but by warning of these dangers, it will better help you understand the truth of the gospel. So the first danger is what's known as free grace theology. Free grace theology is this extreme view that says if we are truly justified by faith alone, then the only thing that counts is belief in Jesus and nothing else. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that what? Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So it's just the belief that counts, right? For their purposes, they define belief as just an intellectual assent. To give an example from one of their websites, in the same way that you would acknowledge and say that it's true that George Washington was the first president of the United States, so it's enough to believe that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again for the forgiveness of my sins. From a salvation standpoint, in this view, it doesn't matter what happens to a perfect life, or sorry, what happens to a person's life after that person had that initial belief. If there's no repentance from sin, if there's no evidence of good works, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that initial act of belief. We are saved by faith alone, right? Everything else is works. They would acknowledge that good works do matter in one sense because we will, we will all be judged in the end for what we do. But if you had this initial belief, 
Your works will not play a factor on where you will spend your eternal dust, or, you know, your, your eternity. That was settled by your initial belief. Your good works will count in determining the amount of rewards you will receive in heaven because of your initial belief. That's what free grace theology is. And you can see how it's kind of, you know, really extreme that, you know, we're saved by faith alone, belief alone, so that's all that matters for a person to receive salvation. But we can't support this theology because it goes so many, against so many passages in scripture that talk about the need for repentance. For example, Acts 20, 21, Paul says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God and repent and have faith in our Lord Jesus. When Peter was preaching to the crowd in Acts 2, he says, repent and believe in Jesus. Also, this theology goes against our understanding of the teaching that we believe that Scripture states you know, that we are justified by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone because it's accompanied by all these other graces which enable us to live transformed lives before God. That's why the Apostle James can ask in his letter in James 2, What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So that's free grace theology and the danger of just seeing it as belief and intellectual assent that matters. On the opposite side, you have people who say, for one, they have the right kind of faith, it is to believe in Jesus, but you also need to submit to him as the leader of your life. This view is known as lordship salvation because it holds that when a person accepts Jesus into his or her life, it's not only intellectual assent that the person is given, that, you know, I acknowledge that Jesus died for my sins, but it also at that time asked Jesus to be the Lord of his life or her life. And I believe this is the correct view, but there can also be problems if in seeing this view and in processing it, it creates this two-step conversion or lack of conversion. And to explain, let me read part of a letter I found that someone had written to John Piper and, and recount part of his response. So the person, so John Piper wrote, you know, talked about Lordship Salvation, what I just described. And um, the person wrote a letter back to, to question Piper about this. He says, Near the age of 15, I accepted Christ as my Savior. As I look back on my life, I can see he had a powerful influence during my late teen years and early 20s. In my late 20s, I began to be aware of the concept of Christ as Lord. As I investigated that concept and struggled with it, I realized that for Christ to be Lord, I had to submit everything to him. In my early 30s, I did just that. The concept of worship salvation that you support would mean that had I died at age 22, that is before Christ was Lord, I would not have gone to heaven. And in reading that, I also thought of another scenario that, that's kind of different but kind of related, which could go like this. Someone could say, I accepted Jesus at 15 and asked him to be Lord of my life, 
but I didn't really live as he was, as, as if he was Lord over my life. I struggled with sin, I acted immaturely, and it wasn't until several years later that I really understood what it meant for Jesus to be Lord of my life. So I reprayed the prayer I made at age 15 and dedicated my life to him. And it was truly at that point that I became a Christian. So the problem with both of these stories is that this thinking bases one's salvation more on one's experiences than on his or her faith. You know, the thinking is, I didn't really have Jesus as Lord over my life until age X, so I must not have been a Christian before then. Let me ask, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, what did you believe when you first came to faith? Was it a sincere desire to come to Christ and trust in him for who he is and what he offered? Does the fact that several years down the road when a person more fully understands what it means to submit to Christ and even may recognize that he or she did not relate to Jesus as Lord in, her prior, in his or her prior years nullify the salvation back then? Piper writes this in response, in part of his response to this letter. He says, I wonder if that is exactly true, that you weren't truly saved until you accepted Christ as Lord. And he says, I wonder about this because something may be real even when we don't understand it, or even use the right language to describe it. For example, is not a person born again just because he has never heard the term born again that does not relate to Jesus in those terms, but only in terms of faith and forgiveness? No. A person is as born again if he believes in Jesus, even if he has never heard of the word born again. Later he writes, none of us yet understand the full implications of the Lordship of Christ on our lives. I am struggling every day to know what the Lord is requiring of me in specific choices among good options. I am learning every day the extent of his, lordly, of his lordly controls over the world and his mysterious ways of fulfilling his promises as Lord of my life. Submitting to the Lordship of Christ is a lifelong activity, not merely a once-for-all experience. But I think his point is that though we continue in our Christian walk, and become more and more transformed into the image of Christ, it doesn't necessarily disqualify the little amount of faith or little knowledge of Jesus that we had when we first believed. We only needed faith as small as a mustard seed, right, as Scripture tells us. I mean, true, if there's no evidence of you being transformed by Christ, you know, if you've been a Christian, or you've called yourself a Christian for ten years, and there's zero evidence of God's work in your life, Well, maybe your salvation is an issue. But don't base your salvation merely on your experiences or lack thereof versus the truth of the gospel. For Paul, this is very important because he wanted everyone to understand that justification is by faith alone. But then the question becomes, how do we live out our faith? And, I mean, we could do a whole sermon on this. We, I, uh, I, I listened to whole sermons, whole sermons on what I'm about to talk on next. 
but we don't have that much time to get on, get, um, you know, that much time to spend on it. Uh, but I just wanted to show that, you know, and some some of you know we, we have uh, currently going on uh, some life on life discipleship groups, and uh, for our leaders of these life on life groups, we learn and try to practice this exercise called the gospel waltz, and. Um, Oh, sorry. Can you flip it back, Kyle? Sorry. Oh, sorry. Okay. Hopefully you, you can see... Yeah, can you flip it uh, one more slide forward? Thank you. Hopefully it, uh, it's not uh, too small for you to see this. Um, but basically, if, if you follow the chart, it's the cycle of repent, believe, obey. Repent, believe, obey. You know, we try to live our lives the best as we can in obedience to Christ. But oftentimes we fall short. We may have times when we doubt. You know, we may have times when we, you know, just feel like, um, you know, we're not a Christian. We're not living a Christian life. And so this Gospel Waltz teaches us to go through this cycle of repent believe, obey. Basically what happens is if a person fails and sins or feels like they're not really living a Christian life, another person does the waltz with them. And the waltz is, you know, is, you know a three-step dance. And so the first step is talking to the person and, and leading them to repentance. You know, asking questions about, you can, you can't see it, so he says, you know, what sin do you need to re- confess and repent of? What could be the root issue of the sin? Is there something deeper going on? And then, after they have that conversation, the person moves to the next stage, the next step, which is believe. And the person speaks the truth of the gospel over, you know, over this person, to remind this person of what is true, you know, to recognize that Christ has forgiven them, to know that through Jesus' death that He paid the penalty for their sin, to acknowledge that Jesus' work in His life, death, and resurrection was completely sufficient to bring about this justification. You want the person to recognize Christ's righteousness in you and God's finished work in you through Jesus. You've been forgiven. You have right standing before God. And then the other step, the last step, is to move the person to obedience. And then the questions, if you can't read it, it says, how is the Holy Spirit prompting you? In this situation, how is God calling you to obey? And that, how can I support you in living out your obedience in this situation? If we had more time, you know, I would try to have some people come up and we could demonstrate it. But unfortunately, you know, we don't have the time to do that. As I mentioned, though, you know, there's, there's whole messages that talks about this. Um, I can email you, be happy to email you the messages if you want to find out more, if you want a copy of this illustration, yeah, I can hook you up, uh, just let me know. Um, but understand that this is kind of a neat 
illustration or exercise we can do with each other to remind us, to remind each other of the truth of the gospel and the sufficiency of Christ's work and who we are in Jesus and how to move in obedience to Jesus. And this is really what the gospel is. You know, recognize that for Paul in our passage for this morning, what was at stake once again was not just some Gentile Christians being disrespected. What was at stake is the heart of the gospel. And you need to see clearly what the truth of the gospel is because when you have that clarity, you have correct thinking, which leads to correct behavior. The gospel is the fact is the fact that we have been justified by faith alone, not by anything we do, not by obeying the law or being good. It's just because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and our faith in Christ that gives us right standing before God. And this is what makes the gospel good news. No matter how many times you failed, no matter how terrible your sins may have been, Jesus, Jesus shed blood, paid the penalty for your sins, and set you free from sin and from death. So no, no matter how much you may feel a lack of self-worth, the gospel tells us that we are of much worth in God's eyes. So when we see God face to face, we don't tell him we receive salvation because we went to church every Sunday or gave all this money to charity or served the poor or read our Bibles every day or you know, got good grades or performed well in our work. We say we can only claim salvation because Jesus came to pay the price for our sins and only through him and his righteousness can we be forgiven and declared not guilty. So we stake our hope and we stake our security in Jesus we seek more of God's grace to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to live lives honoring to Him. Not in order to earn salvation, but because we have been set free from sin in Christ, and we are free now to live for Christ. And this is the truth of the gospel, and this is what was at stake for Paul. And so this morning, I hope you understand clearly what salvation is, what it is not. And, in you, and by having this clarity, it will, it will lead you know, to proper conduct. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the truth in your word. And more so, Lord, we thank you for this salvation that is so great. This gospel which tells us that justification is by faith alone. Lord, we look at our lives and we know we can never earn it on our own because we are sinners and we have rebelled. We have, we are spiritually bankrupt before you, Lord. And it is only through your grace and love and mercy, through Jesus and his work, We thank you, Lord, for this amazing grace that you have poured out upon us, that we can be set free from sin and from death and be restored to live life fully in you and through you. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.